Hello. Welcome to Friday, the 16th of October. I am Jan Fran and you are listening to The Briefing. It is the latest news headlines to your headphones every weekday. And today on the show, you've just got me this morning. Well, you've got me for half the show a little bit later on. Jam and I are going to ask the question, how does your name affect your job? And can it actually make it harder for you to get one? My secretaries regularly get asked when someone is making an appointment, whether I can speak English because they've seen other doctors that have names like mine and they can't really understand them. Yeah, assumptions about names in the workplace and how that might affect you coming up in just a second with me and Jamila. But first, the big news stories of the day. Are you young and healthy? I promise this is not an infomercial. Uh, Congratulations to you. But the bad news is, though, that you may not get a COVID vaccine until 2022. So the World Health Organization's top scientist, Sumya Swaminathan, is worried that so many people will think that everyone will get one early next year. People tend to think, ah, on the 1st of January or the 1st of April, I'm going to get the vaccine and then things will be back to normal. It's not going to work like that because no one has ever produced vaccines in these volumes that are going to be needed. That's good to know. The WHO has also warned that Europe's second wave could kill five times as many people as the first in just months. This is if more isn't done to contain the virus. Now, the continent has recorded its highest number of new weekly cases on record, but the death rate, however, is well below what it was in April. Uh, Meanwhile, Paris will implement a 9pm to 6am curfew and London will return to a partial lockdown in the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, That means that Londoners won't be able to meet anyone outside their household in any indoor setting. Now, just for context, there are around 200 vaccine trials happening around the world, including at least one here in Australia. Um, The most promising trial, of course, is the one being run by Oxford University in the UK, That's run in conjunction with the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. There is no clear indication of when that vaccine will become available, however. Even being the Prime Minister, it is not enough to save you from plane and internet troubles. No, ma'am. Scott Morrison has been forced to cancel today's National Cabinet meeting after a technical issue with his RAAF plane left him stuck in Cairns and he couldn't get a secure internet connection there to join the hookup. One of the biggest talking points uh, that was supposed to be on today's agenda, at least, is a plan to expand a quarantine facility at Howard Springs, which is near Darwin in the NT. Um, That's in order to bring home more stranded Australians. There's still a few I's and T's to cross, but we're very hopeful of of a good arrangement with the Australian government. That was the Northern Territory's Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, there. Uh, National Cabinet will be held sometime next week instead. Uh, There are almost 30,000 Australians that have told DFAT that they want to come home. Last month, National Cabinet upped the weekly cap that we were accepting from 4,000 to 6,000, split among the states and territories. According to DFAT, though, almost 400,000 Australians have returned home since March. The other thing, though, that is stopping Australians from actually getting to Australia is the fact that there are just limited flights out of certain countries And there is some exorbitant airfares being charged by some airlines as well, which is making it extra difficult. Another 30,000 people have lost their jobs last month. Australia's unemployment rate nudged up from 6.8 to 6.9%. And look, not unsurprisingly, most of them were in Victoria, 
and the state's had a particularly tough time over the last few months. Two-thirds of those job losses were full-time, a third were part-time. The PM says the latest figures are proof that the Premier, Dan Andrews, should be relaxing as many restrictions as possible this Sunday. 70,000 jobs lost in Victoria in the last two months. That's why we've got to get Victoria open safely again and so people can open their businesses again. That was Scott Morrison there and Victoria's Premier, Dan Andrews. Well, he's expected to announce a relaxation of COVID restrictions in Victoria this Sunday. Fingers crossed the state recorded just six cases yesterday and the day before. So doing some pretty good numbers there. That was actually half what New South Wales recorded. And there is no second US presidential debate happening, uh, at least not in the format of the last one, which, look, that will come as a relief to any and all people who don't want to see two men shouting over each other on a stage for two hours. No, sir, stop. I would never say that. I would play it. Will you shut up, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so this. Unpresidential. Oh, man, that is difficult to listen to, and it was difficult to watch, frankly. Um, so instead, President Donald Trump and Democratic candidate Joe Biden, they'll hold separate televised town hall meetings, um, which are actually set to begin in a few hours' time. So what will happen is the two will just take questions from the public in two different cities, and they'll be televised on two different networks. Trump's on NBC from Miami. Biden is on ABC from Philadelphia and they will be televised at the same time. So the two will actually be competing for audiences. Originally, the plan was to hold a virtual second debate. This was after Trump, his wife, and we found out his son tested positive for the coronavirus. But Trump said no to a virtual debate. So a town hall it is. All right, Jam is here. Let's talk names in the workplace. What's in a name? The great quote from Romeo and Juliet. But don't worry, we're not going to get all Shakespeare on you today, I promise. But we are going to ask if John and Mary both apply for a job, is John more likely to get the gig? And if Mary and Muhammad apply for the same job, will Mary get more of a look in now? In today's briefing, yes, we are asking what's in a name when you're applying for a job. Because... You know, we tend to think of ourselves as pretty egalitarian, right? Like, we are the country of the fair go, after all. But are we really? In 2012, researchers from the Australian National University conducted an experiment. They sent out 4,000 fictional job applications for real jobs. But there was a catch. On some applications, they used an Anglo-Celtic or English-sounding name. But on others, they used names that sounded stereotypically Indigenous, Italian, Chinese and Middle Eastern. Yeah, so it was the same job, exact same resume. The only difference was the name. And what they found was that job applicants with Middle Eastern or Chinese sounding names are sadly less likely to score an interview than those with English sounding names. Yeah, and this isn't just a one-off. There were similar findings in a 2017 Sydney University study. So fake CVs were sent out, again, in response to real job vacancies um, in Sydney and Melbourne. 13% of job applicants with Anglo-Celtic names were invited back to an interview. This is just compared with 4.8% of Chinese-named applicants. Neela Janakiramanan is a hand surgeon. She's based in Melbourne. 
patients make the decision to hire or not hire Neela every single day. And she says her name has a pretty big role to play. My name is Neela Janaki-Ramanan, which often gets mistaken for a Sri Lankan name uh, because my heritage is Tamil. But when I um, finished medical school, I got married and I got married to someone with a very Western surname. And so one of the questions that I asked myself at the time was whether in order to make my own life easier, um, and there's lots to interrogate about why I thought that that would make my life easier, whether I should change my name. And in part, that was because I guess I wanted people to see me in a certain way. I wanted um, career progression to be easier because there was this perceived sense that if you have a name that's really hard, then maybe people won't remember you, maybe people won't respect you in the same way. Um, And in the end, I didn't, um, in part because I'm a feminist, but probably mostly because uh, my name was part of my racial identity and not giving that up. Um, was was quite important to me. So my married name would have been Crammond, which is a very normal kind of Scottish, Anglo-Saxon sort of name. Neela, you're a surgeon. Have your Mm. patients ever reacted to your name specifically? Has it helped or hindered the business, I suppose? My secretaries regularly get asked when someone is making an appointment whether I can speak English and whether I can speak English with an Australian accent because they've seen other doctors that have names like mine and they can't really understand them and if I can't speak English maybe they don't want to come and see me at all. I speak to some of my colleagues who have similar backgrounds and it doesn't matter where they were born, whether where they trained, those are questions that are quite frequently asked whereas if you have you know, a more Western name, people don't seem to ask that at all. So you think that there are people that are making assumptions about you based on your name, one of which I guess is your English language skills. Why do you think people make these assumptions? We know that this sort of unconscious bias exists and that's why I said for most people I don't think it is malicious. I think it's just a a representation of the biases that we carry around. And so when you see someone who has a non-Anglo-Saxon name, then there are certain questions that get raised. And in in the medical industry, um, this includes... Can this person speak English? Were they trained here? Where did they go to university? Um, And this carries with it layers of assumptions about your quality as a clinician, Mm. which is something that I feel dreadful about because I know that my overseas trained colleagues are just as good as I am at, at the practice of medicine. I had to make a very conscious decision as to whether I put on my website that I was Australian trained because if I didn't, then I was concerned that patients would not come to see me because they had a preconceived notion that perhaps the level of care that I provided was not the highest standard. This is pretty emotionally charged stuff. Does it upset you? Oh, it it does. It does upset me, you know, not at a, you know, sobbing into my morning coffee sort of level, but in a very frustrated sort of way because I think that we are just decades and decades away from addressing this. Even though in in the medical industry, the, these impacts are very visible, I'm certain that they crop up in other industries. Yeah, it certainly does crop up in other industries for sure. And it's not always about race, Jan. Research from Hayes Recruitment in 2017 found that when employers were presented with otherwise identical resumes, 
women were at least 30% less likely to be interviewed than men. Samantha Christides works in construction and she reckons that she gets treated differently when she uses her nickname Sam because people mistake her for a bloke. Particularly if someone hasn't met me before or heard me over the phone, um, they've generally you know, gone by an email or when I've had an application online for something, I do tend to get quite candidly actually uh, get over the phone, oh, I thought you were a guy. And I suppose I didn't give it thought initially, but then as time has gone on and I've just continued doing that, I've noticed it's, it's actually pretty common and it happens to me a lot. And what kind of work do you do, Sam? And do you think it's been advantageous that people sometimes think you're a bloke? Um, Yeah, so I'm in the construction industry. I think it's had its pros and its cons. Um, Definitely when people have thought I I was a male, I I could tell via emails and just by um, some of the work conferences before you, you you know, you you talk to people before you necessarily like have a, online conferences or or you go to meet them or whatever the case might be. And I definitely think the behaviour has changed once they've met me or once they've heard me over the phone, whether that be for an interview or whether that be within my role with what I do with certain clients and stakeholders. When I've spoken to them online or when I've done stuff, you know, via email, I find that then their their behaviour does somewhat change. Not everyone, but you can just tell with some people that, especially the ones that are so candid and saying, oh, I thought you were a guy. There's a certain shift. I don't know that it's so obvious to them, but it's obvious to me just because of what they've said and then how their behaviour's changed a little more in that way. Yeah, so what can be done about all this? How do we take race and gender out of recruitment and out of the workplace to make sure that everyone gets treated fairly and gets to be who they are? Lisa Anise is the CEO of the Diversity Council. She's been mulling over these questions for a long time and she joins us now. Um, Lisa, why why do we make assumptions about people based on nothing more than a name? Well, those assumptions are happening, we believe, at, at quite an unconscious level. So when we, you know, make decisions about anything in life, we use the stimulus that is available to us Um, in order to help us um, make sense of the information that's ahead of us. And so when it comes to things like recruitment, um, we look for names that are more likely to be similar to the types of names that are in that workplace. And we do this in a subconscious way. There's something that happens with human beings where we rate people more highly and we rate them as having more potential Um, if they are people we like and we like them because they're more like us. It's called the halo effect. It's very well studied in academic psychological literature and it certainly shows why you have groups of homogenous people who all of a sudden say, oh, well, we need someone on the basis of their merit to join. But what they actually mean by merit is, oh, they have to look like us and sound like us. Lisa Anise from the Diversity Council there. Yeah, the good news, Jan, is that some companies are becoming more aware of their unconscious biases and they're actively trying to recruit more fairly. Victoria Police, Deloitte, Australia Post, the Australian Bureau of Statistics and Ernst & Young have signed up for recruitment programs that strip gender, age and cultural details out of the hiring process. 
Yeah, I guess it's disappointing that they have to do that in the first place, right? But, you know, baby steps. Yeah, Shakespeare, he asked the right question. What's in a name? Turns out quite a fair bit, actually. All right, I'm going to head off and mull over Shakespeare because that is our ep today. As always, tell a friend about this podcast. Tell everybody you know. Slide into our DMs. Let us know where you listen to the briefing and we will catch you Monday. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. A Podcast One production.